This is the Jeff Merrick Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. Louis DeBrus talks Edmonton Oilers at the top of the hour. And yes, we'll spend the obligatory time talking about Connor McDavid and Leon Dreisaitl. But should also park some time to talk about Zach Hyman and Ryan Nugent Hopkins having outstanding year. Like, this is the best season we've seen Ryan Nugent Hopkins have ever. But good luck getting a headline. Uh, in the meantime, it's always tough to get a headline in Pittsburgh unless your name is Sidney Crosby, Evgeny Malkin, or Chris Latang. And I think our Spidey hockey Spidey senses are all tingling. Uh, that Latang is in tonight for the Penguins as they face off against the Florida Panthers. Watch this one on Sportsnet. Play-by-play voice of the Pittsburgh Penguins is my good friend Josh Getzoff. He joins me now. Josh, how are you today, my friend? Great to be with you, Jeff. Good to talk to you. I hope you're well. Uh, I am well. I want to get. I want to go all the way back to the Winter Classic here in a couple of seconds. But up first, um, the floor is yours to break the news. Uh, Chris Letang is in or out tonight for the Penguinos. Well, I will say this: I'm not going to 100 percent say he's in, but Mike Sullivan's turned him a game time decision. And Jeff, you know as well as I that uh, <laughs> since Sullivan took over for the Penguins eight years ago. Game time decision is the wink, wink, nudge, nudge. We'll see, yes. but most likely he's in. Yeah. So uh, trending in that direction for him to come back here tonight. You know, when you, when you look at, um, and that's great. It's always a better Penguins team, obviously, when Latang is, is in there. The model of consistency and, you know, the elite athlete. I don't know how much more I can say about Chris Latang. But, I mean, how much profoundly different, are the Pittsburgh Penguins when Latang is in there? Like he's listen. I know I know he's thirty five years old, but he he plays you know like he's so much younger than that, and that's probably just because he takes such good care of himself. Um, still an elite defender, always has been. How different is this team without Latang in the lineup? Yeah, they're. I mean, the easy response to that is they're completely different. And but it's true. I mean, we've seen it here for the last little bit. Chris Latang hasn't played in the Penguins' last eleven games. Uh, and you notice it on the yep. power play. You notice it just as far as the minutes just distribution, you know, on the blue line. He's a guy that eats up a ton of minutes. He leads the Penguins time on ice a game at just about 24 and a half minutes a night. Uh, when him and Jeff Petrie weren't in the lineup, Penguins were without their top two defensemen, their top two minute munchers back there, and their top goaltender and Tristan Jari at the same time. It's not an excuse, just reality uh, for a team that, you know, quite honestly hasn't gotten what they hoped for in the players behind those guys, deeper in the lineup. Um, so they were asking a lot, uh, and they suffered as a result with those guys out of the lineup. And, you know, I, I said on the air when Jeff Petrie came back Friday against Ottawa, thank God. And I think I'll probably say the same thing tonight with Chris Letang if he is indeed activated off LTIR and comes back because uh, these are the guys that, uh, that make the Penguins go. And they're, I mean, they, needless to say, are a much better team with them in the lineup. What was the um? What were some of the takeaways? We'll get to the Winter Classic here now. What were some of the takeaways this team, this organization, the players, everybody had going back to to the game at Fenway? First of all, I mean the Penguins looked spectacular. I loved. Listen, I love both teams doing the baseball motif, the Red Sox and the Pirates, etc. Um, but what were some of the takeaways from the organization? I think everyone loved it. I mean, obviously, you love a different result. Um, I think the funny thing about that is you look at that game. It's probably one of the best games the Penguins have played all year, and they come away with no points. Uh, they had the Bruins pretty frustrated yeah. until they were able to rally in the third period. But I agree. I, I thought the jerseys were sharp. The setting was unbelievable. I mean, Phil Bork and I were right on the glass uh, down at ice level, which 
you know, made it a little difficult to see in the far corner, but I'm not going to complain about anything when I'm staring down the green monster from 200 feet away. So uh, I thought I thought that was a pretty pretty awesome setup. Uh, I think the game itself, you know, you couldn't ask for better weather. You couldn't ask for a better situation considering, you know, Massachusetts and Boston in early January could always be a little sketchy and a little right. difficult, but uh, ended up being a perfect day. Um, aside from the result, as I said, but I think everyone, you know, with Fenway Sports Group obviously now owning the Penguins, there's a heavy uh, Fenway contingent there, um, and you know, a lot of yeah. fanfare around the Penguins, which otherwise maybe wouldn't have been there had it just been Boston against a team that you know maybe wasn't owned by Fenway Sports Group. So uh, I thought it was a pretty, mm-hmm. you know, unique to say the least. Even though it was the second time at Fenway for a Winter Classic, a pretty unique day, and uh, certainly for me, a day that I won't forget. You know, I, I know that it's always difficult talking about your employer. Hey, Merrick, what's it like working at Rogers? I, I get it. <laughs> um, but Fenway Sports Group is, I mean, this is, like, when I look at what the, the portfolio that they've they've put together, um, I look at it and I say, this is the future of sports ownership. You know, this is the first, like, just in your market in Pittsburgh, this is the first non-family-owned professional, you know, big league team. Um, it's now owned by Fenway. There's not a you know person's last name attached to it anymore. What have the differences been? Like I'm not asking you to obviously you know, slam your employer here, but I'm just I'm asking like what do you notice? Because inevitably there's going to be changes. But since right. Fenway took over, what are some of those changes? Because I'll be I'll be blunt. I've been saying this from day one. I think this is the future of sports ownership. I think this is the way it's all going to go. You're going to have you're going to buy an NHL team, an NBA team, an NFL team. You're going to start a streaming service, and away we go. How has it been with Fenway? Like, what have you noticed? I think, to be honest with you, Jeff, the first little bit when they first took over, their their people would start to come into Pittsburgh and observe, but there wasn't a lot going on. They didn't come in and clean house. I mean, it's still a very familiar front office, obviously, coaching staff here in mm-hmm. Pittsburgh. Uh, even the, the team's president of business operations, Kevin Acklin, was in a similar role prior to Fenway taking over. So uh, as far as the people at the top of the organization that kind of run the show still here in Pittsburgh – it stayed the same, and I think in a way, so has the uh, morale's the wrong word, but the, just the operation, I guess, in a way, has stayed the same with these guys here. What I can tell you is, despite being a massive organization, and you know, as you mentioned, owning a few different teams in the Boston Red Sox and Liverpool over in England, these guys are very yeah. hands-on, uh, and they're really involved, and they want to be uh, around the team. They want to be around employers. You know, what I've noticed this year is. There's been a couple significant moments. I mean, Evgeny Malkin hits his 1,000th game, and uh, we'll knock on wood for Chris Letang that I believe tonight if he plays, he'll be 29 games short of 1,000, so he's closing in on that also. Uh, but when Gino hit his 1,000th game, Fenway flew in all their ownership group, John Henry, Tom Warner, they were all here, uh, presented him with a, a plaque, you know, anything that would be customary, but it was great to see all of them here and in the building and physically present to show their appreciation and kind of understand the moment for uh, a franchise pillar. And I'll take it a step further. The, the thing to me that told me all I need to know about Fenway Sports Group and how impressive they are and how well run they are uh, was, you know, the unfortunate passing of Chris Letang's father. And the team made the decision when we were on that road trip uh, to be there for Chris and, and be at the uh, the funeral on the wake and, um, Fenway Sports Group was um, told what we were hoping to do by what I believe to be Mike Sullivan and Sidney Crosby. And I think it was David Beeston, who's one of the executive vice presidents and was on the trip 
Uh, they travel with yep. the Penguins quite a bit, uh, their top guys, um, and didn't even say, you know what, let me talk about this. Let's figure this out in a way that makes sense financially. He said, yep, let's do it. Let's take the red eye from Arizona to Montreal. Let's take the whole team there. We'll get the hotels. We'll come back to Pittsburgh afterward. It's what we need to do. It's where we need to be. So um, they are a big organization, but they have that kind of uh, family feel to it. And uh, it's been really impressive so far. So does this mean then that you get discounts on Red Sox tickets? Uh, I know some of the hardest seats to get in MLB are those monster seats uh, uh, on top of the green monster. Uh, does, does that become available to you now as an employee of Fenway? So I will tell you this. My wife is from outside of Boston, and I was actually with her family for Christmas this year. And one of the questions that her uncle asked me said, you know, listen, I, I, I'll be honest, I don't really like the Penguins. I'm a Bruins fan, but what can you get me with the Red Sox? <laughs> so, uh, yeah, there, there's, there's a lot of chatter going on about that right now. Uh, I think people are interested. In, and I'm curious, hey, if, if the Red Sox are listening and Fenway's listening, I'd love to take advantage of whatever kind of opportunities there are. But I can tell you, I know they've had some uh, cross-organizational meetings and stuff like that, even with Liverpool uh, over yep. across the pond. So uh, yeah. it's cool. It's, it's three unique and really iconic franchises, and they kind of have their toes in a lot of different departments with that, but they make it all work, and it's impressive. Okay, so in your capacity, uh, I, I'm guessing that every interview that you do, including this one, you know you're going to get a question about Sidney Crosby. And we've talked plenty about Sidney Crosby going back to 2004, and he's having a, a wonderful season here. Um, you know, he's over a point a game, like wash, rinse, repeat. He's one of the best players in the game of century, etc. Mount Rushmore of Hockey Hall of Fame, all of it, the credentials, everything. How do you talk about Sidney Crosby right now? After everything that's been said about Sidney Crosby, like, is that well not dry by now? Like, how do you find new things to talk about when it comes to Sid? I think to me, Jeff, what I look at is it's now kind of a game-by-game thing. Um, It's just really impressive, and I I really do. I try to be in the moment with him every time I'm calling him in action because it's, it's a privilege and it's pretty unique. I mean, for example, now you're starting to see some of the names that he's sprinkled around in some of these statistical categories. I mean, the goal in New Jersey he passes Keith Kachuk for 33rd all-time in goals scored in NHL history. Yeah. He's two away from Stan Makita. I mean, the names that he's around now, uh, as you mentioned, the Mount Rushmore type of names, the legendary names that you think of and you think of the greats, and he's in that mix. He's been in that mix for a long time, but now statistically he's starting to find his way right next to these guys and surpassing a lot of them. He's you know, passed uh, Timo Solani for points, uh, just a couple weeks back as far as uh, overall points in his career. So I think those are the kind of things that I'm really appreciating more of now when I watch him is you, you know how talented he is. You know how special he is. But now the the paper is starting to uh, speak to that as well as seeing him surpass these greats and, and carve out his path, which has been impressive to say the least. And, I mean, again, already over 50 points this year. He's already over 20 goals. Um, what I will say is I never take it for granted. I don't think the Penguins fans take it for granted either and realize what they have here because as the league gets younger and as some of these superstars start to shine, I mean, just seeing Jack Hughes uh, Sunday in, in New Jersey, that kid is unreal. Uh, and I think we all know that he's going to oh, be yeah. a problem for everyone in the Metro for a long time. Uh, even tonight with the Panthers in town, yeah. you got a, a lot of dynamic players like Matthew Kachuk, who's only 25. So Crosby's 35. I mean, his best years are – arguably not here right now, 
but his performance level is still speaking to the point that maybe he has a couple of his quote-unquote best years left in him. So uh, I just am so impressed with how he's, you know, honed his game each and every year. He focuses on little details, and uh, the results speak for themselves. He's one of the greatest of all time. So when Elliot and I were in Boston for the Winter Classic, we sat down with your colleague, Phil Bork, who is just one of the best people you'll ever want to meet. I think he's one of these people that's uh, incapable of um, uh, of not being honest. He feels like compelled um, to give you an honest opinion and you know to, to share it with you and is a completely unfiltered individual. And we talked a lot about Yarmir Yager. And how, you know, Phil, you know, really didn't like him for a while. And that fence has been mended. And, you know, the idea of, you know, retiring number 68 in Pittsburgh, which would be just a tremendous idea. I know that a lot of people would appreciate that. Um, I I am curious. Listen, you're right there. You know it. Uh, I don't know what the temperature is. How do Penguins fans feel about Yager now? Like, I I know that they were miffed going back to 2011 when it was looking like Yager was going to, you know, come back and sign with the Penguins. And then he goes to the team, you know, the the cross-state rival in the Philadelphia Flyers. (laughs) How do fans feel about Yager at this point in Pittsburgh? I'll answer that. I will say I did get a chance to listen to that 32 Thoughts podcast with you and Elliot and Borky, and that was, uh, I agree with what you guys put with the tweets, probably one of the best ones I've ever listened to, and I'm biased, but it was, it was unbelievable. He's, uh, just a, he's a great yeah, storyteller. His passion for the game and, and his story and, and the Penguins is, is unmatched, and it is a blast getting to work with him and, and just call him a close friend here over the years. But uh, as far as Yager is concerned, I, I think that those days of the bitterness about what happened with signing with Philadelphia, you know, coming back on a few different teams, the shock of seeing him in, what, seven or eight different NHL jerseys aside from the yeah. Penguin sweater, um, that's kind of worn off a bit with time. And you have to remember, there is a, an entire generation of Penguins fans that are coming up now that Yager is kind of like this folk hero. Like, he's not a... They don't really remember his NHL career as clearly, even though he was only in the league a handful of years ago. They don't remember it as clearly as, you know, someone like myself or you that that remember those early years with the Penguins and the dominance he had, even his years in New York and Washington where he was really electric. Um, So I think that um, the fans are ready to welcome him back. I think Yager is definitely to your, to the point of your and Borky's conversation. He's, you know, kind of got an eye on that and hoping that that's something that doesn't happen or that does happen rather in the not too distant future. Um, you know, the Penguins brought back the Robo Penguin this year, and I think that had a lot of people with uh, Yager nostalgia. Uh, and Jason Zucker had the salute when he scored with the first game in it. I mean, there's a lot of so uh, there's a lot of not, yeah. yeah, there's a lot of Yager longing here in Pittsburgh, and I think it's you know it's just a matter of when, not if, that jersey retirement happens, and that's going to be that's going to be one of the more special nights in an organization's history that's had a lot of them. So that'll be a that'll be a cool one when that day comes down the line. You know, one of the things that that Phil mentioned to us is Yager's idea of somehow getting the Penguins um, to Czechia and doing a game there and Yager drops the first puck and announces his retirement and then all of a sudden the Hall of Fame's years perk up and that leads to a a jersey retirement. I think that's a great idea. Like, I have about zero influence in this industry to get something like that <laughs> off the ground. Uh, but what, when you heard that one on the podcast, getting the Penguins to, to Prague, to have Yager drop the puck, announce his retirement, and get the ball rolling for jersey retirements and you know, Hall of Fame nods, you know, what goes through Josh Getzoff's mind? 
first of all, I've never been to Prague. That would be awesome. Uh, second of all, um, <laughs> I, it's funny you mentioned this, Jeff, because Borky and I, when we were coming back from New Jersey on Sunday, somehow got to talking about Yager, and we got to talking about your conversation about that, and we were going through the teams, and we were saying, you know, the Penguins haven't played in Europe in a long time. They were in Sweden in, you know, the late 2000s uh, before 2010. I think it was the 2009 season they were out in Sweden. Um, they haven't been out there in a while. Who's another team with the Czechia natives? Boston. That, that would Boston. Make a lot of sense. Boston. And exactly. That's who we zeroed in on. Boston and Pasternak and, uh, you know, just uh, Pavel Zaka and, uh, who knows if Krejci's in their cards there in the future, but he's got a history there, obviously. Yeah. So uh, that one was the one that we were thinking. We were like, wow, that would be that would be pretty cool because Yager obviously played for the Bruins too. So uh, um, yeah. that would be an interesting well, uh, interesting thing. Uh, as I said, I have about zero influence, but I know a certain group that may or may not have ties to both Boston and Pittsburgh who may just be your owner, Josh Getzoff, in Fenway Sports. So just <laughs> eh, putting it out there for, for more breadcrumbs. Okay, um, got about a minute and a half here. Tee up tonight. So it's the Pittsburgh Penguins and the Florida Panthers. Panthers just got clubbed last night. Like, they're coming in a wounded animal here. Uh, and we all know what's happened to the Florida Panthers season. It was not supposed to go like this. I know they went all in last year on the season. Uh, they got through the first round, but then ran into the juggernaut Tampa Bay Lightning. Uh, and this year, listen, it's been tough. We wonder if they'll even make the playoffs. They don't have their first round pick. That went for Ben Sherratt to the Montreal Canadiens. What do you expect tonight between the Cats and the Penguins? I watched a lot of that game last night, uh, Jeff, with the Panthers and Rangers, and I actually was not unimpressed by the Panthers' uh, effort in that game. I felt like they did control play for a large portion of the second period, but the, the Rangers were opportunistic, and I looked like the, the Panthers lost Sam Bennett to an injury in that game, so I wonder if he'll be available tonight yeah. for a team that's already missing some key players. I mean, no Patrick Hornquist, no Eric Stahl. We know Anthony Duclair and the Achilles has been out for a while. Um, so these are these are major pieces not in the lineup, which, of course, the Penguins can relate to over the last few weeks. But this is one of those proverbial four-point games. I mean, it's huge. I, I almost feel funny how much I've been talking about the playoffs when the Penguins have only played 46 games. But the reality is all these games seem to matter because you're playing teams around you in the standings, and uh, especially a game like this. I mean, the Penguins are up three points on Florida. They have three games in hand on them. So you win this game in regulation tonight, uh, you're putting yourself in a pretty good position. And if you're the Panthers, you're looking up at a pretty uphill yeah. battle, uh, you know, coming out of the all-star break in your barn um, and in just yep. a few short days. So I expect this to have a, a real playoff feel to it. I, you know, I always wonder about the back-to-backs and at what point of the year they start to become a thing. Right. I don't really believe in them being an issue now, but I mean, I should say like a month yep. ago, but maybe now they are. Uh, you know, it'll be interesting. This is the 50th game of the year for Florida, too. So they've been playing a lot better. Um, last night was, as you mentioned, they got knocked down they, pretty good by the Rangers. But uh, they'll be a good test. We, uh, we're up against it. Josh, thanks as always, pal. You be well. You too, Jeff. Talk to you soon, bud. Josh gets off. Hour two coming up next. The most opinionated Maple Leaf show out there. Real Kipper and Born. Be sure to subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is the Jeff Merrick Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. Okay, welcome back to the program. Um, welcome to hour two of the show. Um, 
Just a few things we're going to go over here. I'm going to talk to Louis DeBrusque in a couple of moments about the Edmonton Oilers, the hottest team in the NHL right now. Uh, and we'll talk plenty about Hyman and Nugent Hopkins. And yes, we'll get to Connor McDavid. But at this point, you know, much like when you talk about Sidney Crosby, what more can you add? Um, it's tough to add on to Connor McDavid right now. Just to be blunt, the guy's awesome. He continues to do awesome things. Uh, the expectation now is every time you watch the Oilers, he is amazing. Uh, we'll get Louis' thoughts on the Edmonton Oilers and Connor McDavid, Ryan Nugent Hopkins, and Zach Hyman, and what they could be looking at next. Um, so we'll talk to him in a couple of moments. In the meantime, it is the return once again of the random player of the day to nominate a random player and force us to actually do homework for this show, to actually do some heavy lifting here, Matt Marchese. JM Show at Sportsnet.ca. Send in your nomination for the random player of the day. And Matty Marchese, who do we have today? Today is uh, is a throwback to the 70s and a guy who has the may, arguably the greatest collection of jerseys from his career, and it is Al McAdam, and mm. that was sent in by Mike Campbell. Okay, so Al McAdam, and you referenced the jerseys. So we think about the Philadelphia Flyers. We'll get there. We think about the Seals. We think about the Cleveland Barons. We think about the Minnesota North Stars as well. That's a pretty sweet collection. Like, if you're making a collection of, like, which jerseys look like 70s jerseys, that's a pretty sweet one. And you know what made it look even better, to be honest with you, Maddie? He had a great 70s mustache. He did. Al McAdam always had the great 70s mustache. So where to begin? So, first of all, um, Al is a uh, uh, proud player from Charlottetown PEI. And even though, I think it was Harry Neal who would have been the coach there, Harry Neal tried to convince him to join the Ontario Hockey Association, as it was known then. Now it's called the OHL, the Ontario Hockey League, to join the Hamilton Red Wings. Bob Neely would have been on that team, Mike Viser. Would have been on that squad. He chose to play University of PEI. He was actually drafted out of a Canadian university, which I assure you is quite rare and certainly was quite quite rare, certainly in the 70s. And just off the top of my head, I think a Joel Ward is one who was drafted out of that. No, he signed coming out of the University of PEI. I remember um, Doug McLean told me he was trying to sign Joel Ward with the PEI Association no-go, he ended up signing uh, with Minnesota. And I think it's because they 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 uh, they offered him a guaranteed contract, a guaranteed one-way, and not a two-way deal. And I think that's what McLean was offering. Anyhow, um, back to Al McAdam. Um, he did play in the 1974 Stanley Cup playoffs. I believe he only played one game against the Rangers. And then he played the one game against the Boston Bruins, the one nothing game. And even though he got a Stanley Cup ring out of it, he did not get his name written on the Stanley Cup uh, because he didn't play enough games. And I've, I was always told that McAdam never felt that he contributed enough, so he never really wore the ring. That's an interesting one. If you got a Stanley Cup ring, and we've talked to players about this before, but you didn't really play in any of the games or only a couple of the games, how would you feel about putting on the ring, Matt Marchese? Because that's what Al McAdam went through. Because he only played that one game in the final of the uh, the Boston the Boston game the one nothing game, how would you oh, feel? Oh, Jeff, I'd be wearing that thing all the time. Absolutely, I'd wear it every day. 
Yeah, I would wear. No it. I don't think it even. I wouldn't take it off at night. I wouldn't take it off the shot. It would be on my. It would be on my finger like nonstop. I take my wedding ring off when I go to bed. Or take my wedding ring off when I go to have a shower. I would not take a Stanley Cup ring off. No, I really hope my wife is no chance listening slash watching right now. Not not a chance. <laughs> okay, so. I remember Al McAdam playing on a great line with Bobby Smith and Steve Payne with the Minnesota North Stars. Um, you know, uh, when he was moved to the uh, when he was moved to the uh, the Seals, uh, the player going back was Reggie Leach, uh, who suddenly became a huge name. The Riverton Rifle you know, with the Philadelphia Flyers. Um, when he went to Vancouver, he was traded for futures, and this is where we're going to have a, a random player tie-in, or maybe our first random player tie-in. You know who future considerations turned into? Vancouver, Vancouver. Mm. Peter McNabb? Harold Snaps, exactly. Ooh, okay. So we already have our very first random player tie-in. The Bill Masterton Trophy. Here's an interesting note. So Bill Masterton passes away after getting hit uh, in a game with the Los Angeles Kings, Ron Harris and Larry Cahan, um, and the trophy named after him for dedication, perseverance, sportsmanship, etc., um, Al McAdam was the only, because Bill Masterton was a member of the Minnesota North Stars when this happened, Al McAdam was the only member of the North Stars to ever win that trophy. Um, you know, he played in the final for the Vancouver Canucks against the New York Islanders. Um, and he was part of a Cleveland Barons team. And I always found this team intrigued. By the way, that Barons team was the only team, I think this is still true. I hope this is still true. I'm going to throw it out there. It's the only team amongst the four major teams to cease operations. It was the last team to cease operations. Like, throw the keys on the table. This thing is done. And then later get absorbed by the Minnesota North Stars. That was the last team to cease operations. That was the, um, you know, the last time we saw, we, we saw hockey in Ohio until the Columbus Blue Jackets showed up. I know there were the Cincinnati Stingers, uh, the WHA. Uh, once upon a time, even going back in the Wayback Machine in the 30s, you know there was discussion and there was talk about the Montreal Canadiens relocating to Cleveland. Yes, folks, how different is the hockey landscape if that happens? But you know that's Al McAdam, like really honest, good hockey player. Um, always said that you know he enjoyed going to the to the Seals in uh, in, in Oakland. Mainly because, you know, with the Philadelphia Flyers squad that was as stacked as it was, sure, it's nice to win championships, but he didn't get to play as much. And he got to play on Cleveland a ton and play with Dennis Marook, who was the last Baron ever in the NHL, and got to play a ton with the Minnesota North Stars as well. I know he's legendary in PEI. Uh, I know they love him in Charlottetown, and we love him here. Today's random player of the day, the great Al McAdam, uh, 73-85. to 85 playing in the National Hockey League. What do you think about that, Maddie? It's pretty cool. And I mean, I, as soon as I saw, I'd, I'd heard a lot about Al McAdam, but I had never really done much research into him. And like just seeing the teams that he had played for, like that to me was was yeah. pretty cool just to see, um, again, like the, just the collection of jerseys that this man would have would be incredible. But I did not know that he played at uh, a Canadian university before going to the NHL, which even like it's rare now, but it feels like it was even more rare at that point in time too. Totally. Because most kids would go 
Like, uh, I'm sorry, like you're, you're on the phone or your parents on the phone with Harry Neal of Hamilton, the Hamilton Red Wings, and they're trying to lure you to the, uh, to the OHA, come play with some superstars. Hamilton at that point, um, the, the Red Wings, before they later became the Fin Cups, I mean, that was a powerhouse team. Like, that was a great, and still is, a great junior hockey market. But at that time, like, Hamilton was huge in junior hockey. Like, that's a, that's a tough one to say no to. And now I'm going to go to UPEI. And then to get drafted out of there, I think it was like 55th overall by the Philadelphia Flyers. You really know you're about something uh, when that's happening. So there you go. Al McAdam is our uh, random player of the day. And who, uh, who sent that one in again? Uh, that was Mike Campbell. He sent it in because Al McAdam was one of his favorite players growing up. So there you go. Thank you, Mike. Nice. Well, you know, the, the, the nice thing about doing anyone from the Maritimes is the minute this show goes off the air, my DMs are going to be full of stories. We have a lot of, a lot of people that listen to the Maritimes. There'll be a lot of people, and specifically from PEI, there's going to be a lot of um, either texts or DMs that I get with Al McAdam stories. Oh, by the way, just as, as, as we wait for, to get in touch with Louis DeBrusque, here, tap dance for two seconds. I got I to gotta read a text to you. Hang on. This is going to follow up a conversation from yesterday. This is exactly why we do live radio, so that we can find text messages on, on the air. But Here we go. Um, I found uh, Okay, it. I there found we go. It. Look at that. Okay. No, um, okay, so yesterday you were telling me the story about how yesterday's random play of the day was Elmer Moose Vasco, legend, defenseman yes. from the Chicago Blackhawks, shared the same birthday as his partner, Pierre Palat. And then also played for the uh, the Minnesota North Stars as Ren Blair lured him out of retirement, not unlike what he did with Gump Worsley once upon a time. And you had mentioned that the Vasco family owned a piece of the Stanley Cup. Did you ever get yeah. any more clarity on that one? Because I had never heard no. that story before. No, I did not get any more clarity on it, which I'm very I'm very unhappy about. But I I got this story <laughs> from from Rick Vasco's roommate when he played junior hockey. And they spoke two or three weeks ago. So I was just waiting for confirmation <laughs> okay. about this. All right. But the story was told two or three weeks ago to the roommate. I'm not going to give out his name. But he said, just All reach right. out to Rick. And I reached out to Rick, and I just, I, I'd never heard back. But uh, I believe that the story is true. So I'm going off that. Okay. What's Doug okay, McLean's so here, line? What's so I, Doug McLean's I, line? Uh, Doug McLean's got the best line. I'm not saying it's the truth. I'm just saying what I heard. That's Dude, I use that on the daily. I use that on the daily. Every day I say, listen, I'm not saying it's the truth. I'm just saying what I heard. So my great line from my friend Doug McLean. Speaking of PEI. Uh, okay, so I sent Phil Pritchard to the Hall of Fame, the keeper of the cup, the man with the gloves, the golden feathers, the great look, wonderful man. So I sent Phil Pritchard a text yesterday while the show was on. He's just asking, hey, quick question. Did Moose Vasco own a piece of the Stanley Cup? That's what I sent to Phil yesterday when we were talking about this, 1.50 p.m. Uh, he wrote me back last night saying, thanks for the note. Never heard of Moose Vasco and the Stanley Cup. We'll do some research and ask around. Stay tuned. Would love to know about it, though. So this is a big one. This is I hope a I didn't get anybody in trouble here. Like if, if <laughs> Phil Pritchard, if Phil Pritchard doesn't know, then that is a whopper. Okay, here. So the stories are now coming in about Al McAdam. Okay, so first text I just get about Al McAdam uh, is from Jeff Tuey, who scouts for the Florida Panthers. 
Uh, Jeff Tui for years and years ran the Peterborough Peets, real successful program, graduated a lot of players into the NHL, um, ran the Oshawa Generals as well. Uh, Tui is one of the, the gems of the, of, of, of the game. So, and was there with Roger Nielsen, he's one of those disciples. He said, uh, and I'm sure there'll be people that concur, Al McAdam, strongest hands I ever shook hands with. Apparently he had the grip. Did you know that one? Al McAdam, strongest handshake in the game. Can't say that I would have had that one on my bingo card. <laughs> but there it is. That's what this segment is, is made for. Finding out obscure things about uh, players from the past. But so there you go. You if you got what, Al McAdam stories, send them in. But you know what, though? When I think of the Maritimes... The first thing that comes, like now that you mention it, I'd be like, yeah, I could imagine somebody from the Maritimes having a really strong grip. I don't know why that came to my mind, but that was the first thing that I thought. I was like, yeah, that actually makes sense in some roundabout way. You want to hear a funny PEI story, a funny PEI hockey story? Sure. Oh, I I have an update on on one of our things from last week as well, if you want to get to that. Okay. Speaking of PEI. Let's get there. Let me let me okay. do a PEI. Let me do a, a quick a quick one on PEI. Then you can follow sure. up. So PEI. So if you're a hockey player from PEI, by the time you get to the NHL, and when you get to the NHL, someone always gives you the nickname of. Do you know? I don't. No, I don't. Spud. Spud. Oh yeah, for sure. Everyone Why didn't from, I think of that? Because yes. of the potatoes. Yeah. Because of potatoes. Everybody. Spud. 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 Rick Vive, who although I believe was technically born in Ottawa, but grew up in PEI, his nickname was, in the NHL, Spud. Squid. No. Yes, Squid. Squid. Yes, Squid. Yes. Do you know why? Oh, it's got to be something to do with um, wildlife in the ocean, I would imagine. No, not even close. <laughs> so <laughs> everybody knows it. If your nickname, if your your nickname in the NHL is Spud, if you're from PEI, so Rick Vive, 22 with the Maple Leafs. You know the first NHLer to score 50 goals in Toronto. Uh, did it three times in a row. We think of Rick Vive and Builder Lego, one of the great batteries of that era. Man, was Builder Lego good? And man, could Rick Vive ever finish the first 50? I think the it was Derlego past Perry Turnbull to Rick Vive, who scores on Mike Liute. I think that's the way it went. Anyhow, his nickname was Squid because John Brophy was his coach, and he was yelling at Rick one day, and he forgot, I guess, that the nickname from everyone from PEI was Spud, and instead incorrectly called him Squid, and it <laughs> stuck. Blah, 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 blah. Know what I'm talking about? Squid? And then That's it just amazing. stuck, and that be and that became Rick Vives' nickname. Because I used to always wonder when I, I th- how I found out is I used to do a you know a radio show a million years ago uh, with Bill Waters, and whenever we'd have Rick Vive on or we'd talk to Rick Vive on, Billy would always call him Squid. And so Billy told me the story about John Brophy, and I subsequently you know became you know pretty close with Rick and had a number of conversations, and that nickname rings true. And that nickname, and by the way. 
you want to read a great book about uh, about Rick Five, I highly recommend it. it. Was one of the best bo- hockey books I read last year um, with Scott Morrison. The the Rick Five's autobiography was just outstanding. And if you're into WHA stories specifically, there's a ton of great ones in there about the man who should have been nicknamed Spud because it was from PEI, but instead, thanks to John Brophy, was nicknamed Squid. Okay, what do you got about PEI? As we filibuster well, here, I- waiting for Louis DeBrusque, I'm beginning to yeah, wonder about. I- yeah, I have a feeling <laughs> Louis may be um, occupied. Uh, so be busy. last, so last Friday, I did uh, the random player of the day that I had was Ron Tugnut, and the story about Ron Tugnut, which I told on the air, which was told to me by the man who signed the contract for him. Um, Ron Tugnut actually named his boat the SS McLean because essentially Doug McLean paid for the boat. So. Um, one of our listeners, uh, Jordan Moore, he tweeted Ron Tugnut saying that he got a big shout out on the show and he asked, is the SS McLean still on the water? To which Ron Tugnut responded, currently it's in dry dock for the winter, but it's still cruising the Kawarthas every summer. And he tagged Doug McLean and oh, hashtag SS McLean. So there we go. Okay. I love that story. Uh, I love that naming naming uh, inanimate objects after the people who essentially gave you the money for them. I've got one. That's okay. I've got one. So a few years ago, and listen, I I knew Mikhail Grabowski a little bit when he played in Toronto, but um, he married someone from Pickering, and they settled here just a little bit north of where I, northwest of where I live uh, in Stouffville, Ontario. And so um, Grabo and I are at the same gym uh, when he first came here and we're, you know, BSing and he's building a rank and have the kids over and all that. And so Grabo had just, you know, uh, uh, finished building his new place. And in a line I will never forget with a smile I will never forget. And I've told Brian this story. First day I go to Grabo's house, I pull up and there's like a, gorgeous rink off to the side i guess one of the dude is uh, maddie it's like one of these rinks that has like it's got the board like the proper hockey boards there's three chillers like the whole deal like you can tell like okay this guy's serious and his son his son jagger is a fantastic young hockey player um and he's got like a little he's got a, a pond and an island on the pond and it's cool like gravel's got a great spot and I knock on the door, and Grabo opens it up, and he says, uh, in a line I will never forget, Jeff, welcome to the house Berkey built. And I just immediately <laughs> cracked up. <laughs> welcome to the house Berkey built. That is fantastic. And I'm sure Berkey loves that, too, yeah. in a roundabout way. 100%. 100% he did. But anyway, that's, that's the, 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 the story about naming inanimate objects after the people that uh, that paid you. So thanks to the person, I, I forget, Maddie, who was it again that sent in the Almacadam? I should probably write this. Uh, that Mike, was Campbell, Mike Campbell. I have in front of me. Mike Campbell. Mike Campbell. Appreciate okay, you, Mike Campbell, uh, for sending that one in again. Okay, so since, uh, since Louis's not around, um, apparently, I don't know where he is, um, but sometimes that happens. It's okay. Uh, people live lead busy we'll lives. Busy. Um, I did want to ask you just about Zach Hyman because – I mean, listen, we, we know we know that playing with Connor McDavid and Leon Dreisaitl has its perks. Uh, I'm sure of that. But I don't think that anybody had uh, pinpointed potentially 97 points, which is what Zach Hyman is on pace for right now. 
Do you ever look at some people, Maddie, and say, in a previous life, well, first of all, they make you say, hmm, I'm beginning to think that reincarnation is a thing, that reincarnation is real. And there are some people you look at and you say, yeah, reincarnation is real. And I think this person might have, you know, pulled an entire family out of a burning house or a burning car or did something really nice and helped save people's lives or did something like so magnificent that this next life is their reward for it. Think about Zach Hyman for a second. He's gone from playing with Austin Matthews to playing with Connor McDavid. If you don't believe in reincarnation, just look at Zach Hyman. He must, and he's a really decent person now. He's a really, really good person. Loves kids, family guy, the whole deal. Like Hyman is a very good person in the game. But how much better must he have been in his previous life to have been rewarded with the ability to play with first Austin Matthews and then Connor McDavid? Tell me when you look at Zach Hyman, you don't believe in reincarnation, Maddie? Because I do. Oh, I think it. I think at this point you have to because that if there was ever a charmed hockey life, um, I I have never seen one like that. I mean, there's been examples of guys that have played with great players consistently, but um, this one is pretty good. And and the thing that I will say about Zach Hyman, which to me is probably the most fascinating, is that there was a point in time where Zach Hyman was basically told that he wouldn't be able to play. He was never going to make it. He was this, he was that, whatever. And he's worked past all that. Yeah. And of course, yes, playing with guys like Austin Matthews and Connor McDavid helps. But I feel like the step that Zach Hyman has taken this season offensively, yes, much has to do with the because Connor McDavid's on a different planet right now, but he looks like a different player. I know a lot of his goals are scored from within five or six feet of the net, and I understand all that. But he looks like a more confident offensive player. And just what he brings to that Oilers team, man, does he ever mm-hmm. look good. And he, like, his number, his cap number, looks like an absolute steal right now because he's putting up offensive numbers that, I mean, there is a chance, and I would never have said this, there is a chance that Zach Hyman reaches 100 points this year. If anybody says that they saw that coming, they are a liar, and they also don't believe in reincarnation. Um, But it's just, to me, (laughs) the step forward that he's taken is like none other that I've seen in the league. Like That includes Ryan Nugent Hopkins, because he had a track record when he came out of junior. He was the first overall pick. We're not talking about the same cachet here. No, that's true. But a couple of things about about Hyman as well. Uh, I remember watching him play in the OJ, the uh, Ontario Junior Hockey League. So that's it's not the OHL, but still. Um, and he played with the Hamilton Red Wings. We just mentioned Hamilton Red Wings with Harry Neal a couple of moments ago with Al McAdam going back to the early 70s. And I remember watching him saying, really good player, real smart. But like everybody else, what did we always say about Zach Hyman? The boots are going to hold him back, right? The foot speed is going to be an issue. Really good junior player. He goes to the University of Michigan. You know, didn't really have elite seasons until Dylan Larkin got there. Red Berenson would have been running the program then. Dylan Larkin shows up, and all of a sudden, you know, uh, uh, all of a, all of a sudden, Zach Hyman pops, and it's like fifty-five points in thirty-two games or something like that. He gets drafted by the Florida Panthers, and you know, he he 
doesn't sign, uh, gets his way to the, the Toronto Maple Leafs, plays one season with the Marlies, and then gets called up to the, to the Toronto Maple Leafs, and he's been an NHLer consistently ever since. You want to talk about someone that worked hard to improve the area that they most needed. And I really do wonder how much of this is the Red Berenson effect. It's funny, I was having a conversation with someone this morning about getting Red Berenson to the Hockey Hall of Fame. It was one of those, like, how is Red Berenson not in the Hockey Hall of Fame? Like, we always have the conversation about, I don't know, you know how I go on about Adam Foote. How come Adam Foote is not in the Hockey Hall of Fame? No, no reward for the defensive defenseman, etc. Um, and Hyman worked at it. Like, Hyman is not ever going to confuse anyone with Pavel Bury. Make no mistake about it. No one's going to go like, wow, look at how graceful or powerful or explosive a skater Zach Hyman is. But he gets around the ice fine. And he works hard. And he's learned how to make the most of everything that he has. Like, there are some players that you look at, Maddie, and you say, I know there's still more there. You know, and maybe this player will be able to get that more out. When I watch Zach Hyman play, I always say the same thing. He is getting everything out of his skill set. Like it's 100% every single time with Zach Hyman. Like he's not going to, I don't think Zach Hyman's going to walk away from his NHL career when it's all done and have that lament where he says, you know what, if only I would have worked harder at things that I needed to work on. Like, do you not get the sense that a player like Zach Hyman and Hyman specifically has spent hours and hours and hours working on those feet so he can keep up with and think like and compliment Austin Matthews, Connor McDavid, and at Michigan, Dylan Larkin? 100%. These are high-end guys. These are high-end guys. This is Zach Hyman. If you watch him with the Red Wings, trust me, you would not have said, this guy's going to hang with Austin Matthews and Connor McDavid, but there he is. You know what it is with Zach Hyman? This is what I think about with him is you never feel cheated when you watch Zach Hyman. You believe, based on what you see, that every single shift he gives every ounce that he has. He's played hurt. He's done all that stuff. And, like, I just – the offensive – this offensive resurgence has been – just incredible to watch that that whole that whole Oilers team offensively has just been something like we've always talked about like after Connor and Leon like you know what else do they have do they have enough well now you look at them and they are playing better lately but they've got Nugent Hopkins who's having a career year Evander Kane is back Zach Hyman is there I mean even their even the the tertiary guys as our friend Anthony Stewart likes to say like I I love the skill set of a guy like Ryan McLeod right when I watch Ryan McLeod I see Ryan Nugent Hopkins, same type of player, the way that they skate, the way that they handle the puck. I just in terms of body type and just their, their skill set. I'm talking about just the way they look on the ice. I'm not saying that they're the exact same player. God knows the Oilers would love if they were the Mm. exact same player, but that was, a. you know what? I I did have another observation, but let's finish the Oilers conversation because I know you'll appreciate. Okay, so let's get to. Oh, just 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 yeah, just 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 quick. Like I I think we all know where this is headed. You know, Yesipoli RV is not long for the Oilers. Uh, He will either be traded um, or maybe waived and claimed by someone else, and then the rest of Poliarvi's season will probably and most likely be an audition for. 
I don't know, a one-year, $1 million contract next season somewhere else. Like, I believe at times Carolina has shown interest there. I think Detroit at times has shown interest there. Um, I don't know this for a fact, but I, I wonder if Anaheim has ever been interested there. I know that the GM passed them up once at the draft, but I still do wonder if uh, if Columbus could be a second-chance opportunity for Paul Uh We know that Edmonton has asked previously for a second-round draft pick, and they can't get it for Jesse Pugliarvi, even though there are teams. Well, look, at I just mentioned Anaheim. How many, how many firsts did Anaheim have this year? Three? And so. they're still not using that. It's still not using it as a flyer on, on someone like Jesse Pugliarvi. Anyhow, um, I, I think that's where we're headed with Edmonton. And that's going to be to create some cap space for Ken Holland to make some moves, most likely to bring in a, a left side defenseman. I wonder, like I mentioned yesterday, I wonder about Carson Soucy, if Seattle can't come to an arrangement there, if they make him available. I think we all wonder about Gavrikov as well. And I do wonder, as I mentioned with Fridge in hour one, about Nico Mikola of the uh, of the uh, the St. Louis Blues. So there you go. That's that's my Edmonton wrap today. Okay, I'll be quick. I'll be quick with this one because actually it'll lead us into our next guest. Um, this is what happens when I work too much with you. I start to notice these ridiculous things that happen in a game or, or equipment stuff or whatever. Um, Ilya Sorokin has, he has, Ilya Sorokin has black tape on his goalie stick. How many goalies have black tape on their stick? Uh, that's, that's a, a really, short really list. good question. Probably that's a, a really short list. Um, I don't know how many. I mean, I don't have any. It's just, off, it was just so offhand. jarring. To that me. would be. Hmm. Put that one down on the list of questions to ask someone like Kevin Woodley. I know you. You're only allowed. You're not allowed to have black tape on the knob of your stick, right? Like the, we we've seen goaltenders have to retape their sticks if they have it with black. Because they don't want to confuse with the puck when goalies are scrambling and the stick is down. You don't want the official, you know, uh, the the goal judge or the referee to think that it's a goal when really it's just the knob of the stick that's in the net. So you're not allowed to have black tape on the knob of your stick. Um, but yeah, I can't really think of any offhand that have the uh, have the black tape. I'm sure there are just, some, and I'm I'm missing caught- them. But generally, it is it is white tape territory. It, it caught my attention. I was watching. I'm like, what, what's there's something odd about this? Because generally you see goalies and they have white tape on their stick. And that's just kind of what we've come accustomed to. But when I saw that, I was it totally took me aback. And I I was trying to think about, like, how many goalies lately have I seen with black tape okay. on their stick? Like, it's something that I think I would notice. You want to, you want to hear a great line? Yes. Kelly Rudy. Kelly Rudy, who I adore. Kelly Rudy, when I was doing the old Hockey Night in Canada radio show on Sirius, a million, million moons ago, we were having the conversation about goaltenders and is it harder to see a shot coming off a stick with white tape versus black tape? And I was ridiculously trying to make the point of players use black tape to disguise the puck, which we've always been taught. Right. We've always seen it. You know, tape is such a fascinating thing. Like the for the longest time, you know, friction tape, the two sided tape, the Gordie Howe tape was very much in vogue 
um, in the, in the NHL, certainly in North America. It was only those Europeans that used the flashy white tape. Oh, that's a European thing. Here in North America, we use black tape, and it's the friction tape, even though by the end of the third period, your stick is so waterlogged because the friction tape holds so much water on the ice that you feel your stick is a couple of pounds heavier. Anyway, having this conversation with Kelly... And I was like stupidly, as I look back on it now, making the point about black puck on black tape. And I said, yeah, because it's harder to see if you're a goaltender, right, Kelly? If the puck is coming off, <laughs> coming off a blade with black tape. And Kelly says to me, yes, Jeff, goaltenders can't see depth. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, it's funny, but it's a very valid point. Like, I know... I get what he's saying. It's a very valid point. <laughs> They're the only people that can't see depth. That's great. Oh my god. Yeah, Merrick. Oh, he can't see depth. Oh, just keep so on good. believing that one, Merrick. I'll just shuffle along here. I only played in the NHL for a number of years and played on Wayne Gretzky's team. But you have your little theories there, Merrick. You have your cute little theories. I love Kelly. Uh, we'll hit a break. Um, speaking of the Islanders. We're going to talk to Kevin Kurz of The Athletic. Listen, man, it's bad there. And you wonder what direction Lou Lamarillo is going to take this. Is it double down and add and try to get this team in the playoffs so the new building can finally see some playoff action? Or is it time to say, you know, we've got as much juice as we're going to get here. We can't squeeze any more. Maybe it's time to look a new direction. Kevin Kurz, who covers the Islanders for The Athletic, joins me next. That conversation is on the horizon as the Merrick Show continues across the Sportsnet radio network. Covering the Raptors in depth like no one else. The Raptor Show with Will Liu. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is the Jeff Merrick Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. So the uh, the goalie tape issue is starting to take on its own life here online. Uh, John York, who uh, who owns and operates the Hockey Factory, which is a very cool setup uh, in Toronto, submits the best playing goalie, future Hall of Famer, Mark andre Fleury, sometimes uses black tape, but not always. He's that tricky. The black tape conversation started by an observation by Matt Marchese on Ilya Sorokin of the New York Islanders. He has certainly been a bright spot for the Islanders, and there aren't very many. Uh, and you know who knows that? Our good friend Kevin Kurz from the Athletic Islanders won 6-3 in their last 10. And Kevin, thanks so much for coming on today. Things not exactly going swimmingly with the Islanders. What has happened? Is it just too simple to say, well, it's injuries and age? Or is it injuries and age? <laughs> Well, you know, every team has injuries, right? I, I don't really, I wouldn't let them off the hook that easily. Obviously, missing Adam Pellick was was a was a blow. Um, yep. They were sixteen and eleven and sixteen eleven and zero when he came out on December sixth, and then I believe nine seven and five was the record after that before he got back last night. And you could see right away in the first period just those little plays he makes, uh, drawing a couple defenders to him and slotting it to a teammate, and and that helps break, you know, help that helps the transition the other way. And everyone on the Islanders has said that the the biggest issue they've had during this losing streak uh, is that they just they haven't been able to break the puck out of their own end. So Pellick helps in that regard, but there are other issues here, and there are, there are major issues here, and, and it starts with frankly, the same problem that, that we all identified uh, we had at the end of last season, and that's there's just not enough depth 
up front and particularly at the wing position. And, you know, then when you lose guys like Kyle Palmieri, who is, you know, mainstay in the top six and Oliver Wallstrom, who was still sort of inconsistent, um, they don't have the depth to deal with that. And that's why we see the fact that they just cannot score goals right now. It's uh, 17 goals in the last 10 games is obviously not going to get it done. doesn't matter who your goalie is. Um, you know, the, the, there's a few things that we've wondered with the Islanders as well. I know that, um, you know, Lou Lamarillo, um, we all know he's a very conservative uh, manager, even though, you know, ironically enough, you know, when he was first brought in, although it wasn't at the general manager capacity, it was, it was uh, as I believe, as team president, um, that was kind of considered a, a radical hire because no one was hiring anybody out of college. Uh, there was the NHL route, and who was this, you know, smart aleck kid from Providence who's going to teach us how to run an NHL franchise here today? And now that once radical hire has turned into you know, has turned into the, the, the most conservative and traditional of, of managers in the NHL. I mean, he's loyal. He's loyal to a lot of his guys, and, you know, he rewards them handsomely. And I looked at the Islanders and, and some of the contracts that were signed and said, okay, the Islanders are really good right now, but eventually, like in any restaurant, in any bar, there comes a time when the lights come on and the bartender says, okay, time's up. Uh, here are your bills. And I just can't help but wondering that, you know, the lights are on now, the bill has come, and there's still a lot of term left on these contracts here. That's a real awkward spot for a team trying to, to, to do something come trade deadline. Yeah, and I think that conversation, frankly, can start with the fourth line, the identity line, right? The, the line that has been the envy of the league for such a long time. And Cal Clutterbuck is a guy that Lou decided to re-sign last um, trade deadline rather than trade him. And there was interest for him at the time. You know, what, what, what playoff team wouldn't want a guy, a hard-nosed guy like Cal Clutterbuck to come in and maybe play on the pen- penalty kill, maybe play the fourth line, throw the body around a little bit. And instead, the Islanders re-signed him to a two-year deal. And now it just looks like he's breaking down. Uh, he's out of the lineup now indefinitely. He's been in and out all season long. And even when that fourth line was together, they weren't having the same impact that they used to have. So um, I, I know that's maybe one of the, 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 the contracts that is, is least worrisome right now because there are some other guys that they have signed long-term, like, like yeah. uh, you know, Anders Lee. And um, I know Josh Bailey has another season left after this one at $5 million. Um, Paul Mary, $5 million now through 24 25 uh, So, yeah, it's uh, – there is that worry that they've all of a sudden just gotten a little too old and a little too slow and able to, to keep up with today's game. But I also think that you have to talk about the fact that the league has been trending offensively for a little while now. And I think that's part of the reason yeah. that yeah. Um, Lane Lambert tried to instill or is attempting to instill a different system than they played under Barry Trotz, where the defensemen are a little bit more aggressive, try to create more offense. But um it, it it doesn't it, it certainly doesn't look like it's working because it, it works at times and we saw it in the first period of the Toronto game last night but it's not a style that this team is able to maintain. Yeah, you know, as, as Zappa once said, you know, cows don't make ham. Uh, I look at the the Islanders lineup and I say, listen, this is a a league to your point that's defaulting to offensive production to goals right now. And one of the things that teams have are players that can score an easy goal. Like I look at the Islanders and I say, man, it it takes so much work to score that it's so exhausting 
for the Islanders to score a goal. Like what they need is what a lot of other teams have. And, you know, once upon a time, this player was Phil Kessel, for example, just a guy who can fly down the wing and snap a couple in every game. Just scoring easy goals is like one of the biggest luxuries you can have. But it seems as if the Islanders, as constructed right now, you know, they're a team that has to grind and work hard and really earn. Like, there's nothing easy here. They have to earn all the goals that they score. Man, that's exhausting over 60 minutes. Man, that takes it out of you after 60 minutes. Like, yeah. you need someone that even just call them one-dimensional with, oh, this guy just scores goals. Well, good, because goals are hard to come by. And if you have someone that can score an easy one, and that's why sometimes I look at Mike Hoffman and just say, like, oh, if only, if only he could you know, adapt his game a little bit. That's a guy that can score an easy goal. Vlad Tarasenko is a guy that can score an easy goal. Patrick Laine is a guy that can score an easy goal. Like, I look at the Islanders, and I'm just screaming to myself, this is a team that needs someone, Kevin, that can score an easy goal, and they haven't been able to find that player at all. And nowhere is that more evident right now than on the power play, which I believe is now three for 54, I want to say, three for the last 54, Oof. which is abysmal. I mean, that's, that's not just bad. That's, yeah. that's like historic bad. I mean, it's and, – and the chances, you know, I would argue that, that that's – maybe they could have a couple more just, just because obviously when you're that bad, it's going to be at least a little bit of bad luck. But not, it's not much bad luck. They, they, they haven't had that many chances. And it, it comes down to not having the guys that you just mentioned. But one of the other criticisms that's been made by Lambert, and that's, I think, evident to all of us that watch him, is they don't have enough guys to get to the front of the net. I mean, they had this guy, Hudson Fashing, come up, and he's injured now. But yep. uh, basically a career AHLer who's been up and down. He only played maybe 40 or 50 games in the NHL before he got here. And right away you could tell he was bringing something different that the other guys just either – don't have a willingness to do or don't have an ability to do anymore. And that was, he was getting to the front of the net. And that's why Lane Lambert kept putting him in the lineup, kept giving him top nine minutes and he was effective. Now he, you know, is, is he a top nine player on a good team? Probably not. Is he a solid fourth liner on a good team? Yeah, I, I think he could be, but just because this team is so just devoid of, of those kinds of players that can score those goals, whether they're, um, you know, ripping it from the from the face-off dot or getting to the front of the net to, to find the loose puck. I mean, there aren't enough guys on this team that can do either of those things right now, and that's why the power play is where it is, and that's why they've lost 9 out of 10 games, and they find themselves, essentially, I would call them a long shot to make the playoffs right now. So I've got a friend of mine, uh, Kevin, who, who lives in Long Island. He is a, a huge Islanders fan, um, and he sent me this text when this come in. This was last night, 10.45, okay? So it's after the Islanders-Leafs game. Yeah. Uh, he says, any other general manager, I'd say play Kingmaker and trade Mayfield, Varlamov, Parisi, mm-hmm. Pajot, Bavillier, but I have no idea what Lou is going to do. Does that resonate yeah. with you? Yeah, I mean, I have no idea either. <laughs> Being honest, uh, <laughs> it's, uh, you know, obviously no one, no, I'm not sure many people do. It was interesting. He was at the morning skate yesterday. He was, um, him and Kyle Dubas were sitting in the stands for well over an hour. I mean, they were, they were there when the Leafs were skating and then we came back out for the Islander skate and they were still sitting back, sitting up there. And you just wonder, boy, what, what can Lou possibly be saying to, for the last hour and a half here? Um, 
but I think what we do know is he probably wasn't giving away all that much because no one really knows. And you could make that case. I mean, this is a team that I think if you had asked me three weeks ago, are they going to buy at the deadline or are they going to sell? It's, it's, it was obvious they were going to buy because this is an older team, a veteran team that is supposed to be in the Stanley Cup conversation right now. It's a team that, you know, they internally, they figured that so much of their failures last season were due to circumstances, um, whether that was the long road trip to start the season, one of the first teams to have a COVID outbreak and having to play through that. Um, and then having the most compacted schedule in the second half than any other NHL team because they kept having these stops and starts more so than the more so than other teams did. Mm-hmm. So that clearly, I think now was not the case. That there are issues with this roster, and it, last season wasn't just due to circumstances. Um, so what's he going to do now? Uh, they got three games left here before the break. Uh, tomorrow in Ottawa, then they have Detroit on Friday, Vegas on Saturday. So we'll see what they do in these three games, but. It, it, you know, if they lose all three of these games, I don't know how you're how if your Islanders ownership, Lou comes to you and says we need to mortgage more of our future for players that can help right away. I would look at the standing as a, and say, really, this team's only one or two players away from competing for a Stanley Cup. It doesn't look like that way to me. It looks like they're a handful of players mm-hmm. away from keep competing for a Stanley Cup, and maybe it is time to start to start. Uh, you know, rebuild is such a strong word, but at least at least maybe start to retool a little bit because um, this group just doesn't look like they're going to get it done, and they don't look to me like they're just one or two pieces away. Hey, just as an aside, because I I, I do find it fascinating the way that managers are are terrified to say rebuild when all rebuild means is we're changing the look of this team. We're rebuilding it. Sometimes rebuilds are quick. Sometimes rebuilds take a long time. Do, do you have a thought on why managers are so scared to, to use that phrase? Do you think that it will scare away? See, like I always, I've always figured that there, there, it's, a, it's a fear of you know, scaring away season ticket holders and sponsors. And I can understand that. Um, you don't want to make some, something sound, you know, something as negative as a rebuild sound like it's going to be an arduous, long process here. But do you have a theory on why managers are so ugh, hesitant to use the R word and, and, and sort of, you know, pretzel themselves whenever they speak at press conferences? Listen, we just saw Jim Rutherford <laughs> do it last week. Uh, it, they're, they're so loath to use the rebuild word. Yeah, I mean, it's probably just – it's just got to be market-based, right? I mean, I, I worked in the Flyers' front office, and, and they never wanted they, they never wanted to ever use that word just because they didn't think they had to, and that was the pre-salary cap era, so they could probably get away with it then. Yeah. And then, you know, covering the Sharks for 10 years, I remember um, David Pollack, the old beat writer for the Mercury News, I remember him telling, telling me oh, a yeah. story one time about how, you know, when, the last time the Sharks had missed the playoffs, they're – season ticket holder renewals dropped by, you know, I don't know. I don't remember what the percentage was like 15, 20% or or whatever. And, you know, Doug Wilson, when he was still there, didn't want to use that word either because he probably remembered that. And now you look at what the sharks are doing. It's clearly a rebuild they're going through and they're, they're probably going to trade more of their key pieces before the deadline. I mean, it is what it is. I I don't know. I, maybe it's just because I'm in media now. I wish some of these managers would be a little bit more, a little more forthcoming with what they were doing, because I don't think fans are stupid. Um, I think maybe some of them on, on Twitter are, but I think the general fan that's paying money for season tickets is, is, uh, is in tune enough to know what a rebuild really looks like, no matter what word you use. So, um, but you know, at the same time, you look at the Islanders, they just opened this new arena and, 
right now the fans, I think, have directed their ire towards Lou. It's not towards not towards Lane Lambert, even though that's yeah. not really going well so far. Um, I think they appreciate a lot of the veteran guys on the team that have been, uh, you know, working their butts off for a long time and were effective players. I mean, this fan base still likes guys like Anders Lee, Brock Nelson, Barzell, Sezikis. Uh, you know, these guys that have given their all for this team for a long time have just gotten a little bit older. Um, Nelson aside, maybe he's not fair to include in that group because his season's been pretty good. But, um, you know, the, the ire right now is directed towards Lou. And I keep seeing tweets come across about how season ticket renewals are they're sending them out now. You know, teams want their fan base to renew season tickets, it seems like, earlier and earlier every season. And, if your ownership yeah. and, and fans aren't renewing and you ask them why and they're telling you, well, because Lou Lamorello hasn't made any single move with this team for the last calendar year, I mean, you know, w- what do you do? I think I think you at least have to if, – if they do end up missing the playoffs this year and they and their season ticket holder base does take a little bit of a hit because so many of them want a new general manager, I mean, that stuff matters. I wonder how many conversations are being had between Lou Lamarillo and Jim Rutherford as we speak. We shall see. Uh, Kevin, always good catching up with you, pal. Um, you're wonderful. Thanks, as always, for sharing your expertise. And uh, look forward to catching up uh, sooner than later, pal. You'll be well. Hey, anytime, Jeff. Love coming on. Thanks. Kevin Kurz from The Athletic. Uh, it's a tough story to follow. And here's what's, here's what's challenging for Kevin. He sort of hinted at this, too expecting managers to be more forthcoming, finding out information about the Islanders organization. Ooh, I mean, it is Fort Knox. Like, nothing gets out. Kevin has one of the hardest beats in the NHL. Always thank Kevin for stopping by the show. Uh, Random Player of the Day was submitted by Mike Campbell. Thank you again to submit yours. It is jmshow at sportsnet.ca. Thanks to Josh Getzoff talking about the Pittsburgh Penguins. They'll face off against the Panthers tonight. Elliot kicked it off. Thank you, thank you. Thanks to Jen Rolnick and Lance Kennedy and our producer slash fill-in host. He's getting new titles on these business cards. Matt Marchese. Merrick Show back tomorrow, noon Eastern, across the Sportsnet Radio Network.